The other thing we did is very early on in the strategic planning process, we made the decision, and I, I could talk for hours about this, that um, we talk a lot, there's a big difference between being student concerned. Most high quality private universities are very student concerned, which is fantastic. But that's very different than being student centered. And if you're student centered, one of the things you're doing is you're not just caring for students once they tap into your system, you're designing the system around them. So you're fundamentally rethinking how the university operates based on their needs and their interests. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ingenious You, the podcast where we have conversations with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. I'm joined today by Dr. Stephen Standiford, who currently serves as president of Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois. Across the span of his career, President Standiford has gained a reputation as an academic entrepreneur, and we look forward to learning about the innovations that have been launched under his leadership at Bradley. You'll find the link to, to his full bio in the episode show notes. Stephen, welcome to the Ingenious You community. Great, thank you, thrilled to be here. Now, we have an international audience, and so I imagine we may have some listeners who are not familiar with Bradley University. What can you tell us about your institution, and in particular, what sets it apart? Yeah, there's, so it actually even goes back to our founding, which influences who we are today, so that actually matters. We were founded by Lydia Moss Bradley, uh, a very uh, successful entrepreneurial female in the 1800s. And uh, one of the things she wanted to do is set up a university for um, uh, that was open to all from the very beginning. So that's a key part of who we are. It's a very inclusive environment. And to really give people the skill sets they need to be successful. And embedded in that is this wonderful combination of what, what, what some would call traditional liberal arts training, but then also a strong emphasis on the professional fields as well. Uh, we actually, um, more than 50% of our students are actually engaged in some type of STEM science. Uh, so you get a real nice mix of you can come here, be an engineer, and also be engaged in music, for example. And so it's that diversity of opportunities and offerings in a fairly comprehensive environment that we get really excited about. Boy, that's a wonderful trajectory and uh, heritage uh, yeah. to build on. And I didn't know that you were founded by a female uh, founder. That's that's very interesting. You were not you were not single gender though at any point in your uh, history, right? Never. In fact, that was one of Lydia Moss Bradley's uh, um, missions from the very beginning: is to be open to all. That was really really yeah. important to her. And she's if you hear her history, she's an amazingly innovative individual. Uh, we think she's the first female to ever serve on a bank board, uh, a very successful entrepreneur here in town. And that and was boundary pushing from day one, which is one of the things that we love about our legacy. We've been innovators and path setters from the day one, really. And that's something we get really excited about. Yeah, for sure. And I know that's certainly Absolutely. part of your, your story. So, and in yeah. that regard, um, we always like to start by finding out something about the professional journey uh, of our guests. And in your case, you are a first gen college student who trained as a chemical yeah. engineer. So what's yeah. the backstory for your journey to the presidency? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. So I am first generation. And um, I, one of the things I often talk about is uh, what drives me, what, what, what really gets me going every day. And, and part of the reason I ended up being a university president, believe it or not, is because of my experiences as a first generation college student. Mm-hmm. Um, I see and feel the transformational experience that I've had in my life. The things I've been able to do, the things I've been able to see, uh, the experiences I've had, the richness of life that quite frankly, no one else in my family has been able to, to, to have or experience. And so what drives me is how do I, today I get to, to live in an environment where I build the type of institution that allowed me to have the amazing experiences I had. Uh, so that's a big part of my journey is, and, and why I ended up in higher education specifically, did start out as an engineer, was a chemical engineer in a prior life as I describe it. Uh, and one of those classic, I was really good at math and science. So everybody said, be an engineer. And uh, love it, great background. Uh, I'm big on helping our students find their right path. Being an engineer was not the right path for me. Totally the right path for a lot of students, right? Not my path. And so I got my MBA, did my MBA at Northwestern while I was working in the Chicago area. And it was during that that I really discovered that my, my passion for strategy and innovation, I was a strategy professor for much of my career. And then uh, went out to the University of Oregon to get my PhD in that topic. And, uh, and now I get to live that context every day. <laughs> well, exactly. I was going to say, what a wonderful foundation for the presidency, particularly today when strategy is so very critical. And that's a great segue to our next question. I know that right. at Bradley, you have recently completed a very ambitious strategic planning process that involved a significant number of campus constituents. I was... Uh, looking on your website, and there's a lot of great information on your website for folks that may be interested in learning more uh, about what you did. But in the introduction of the plan, you write that the new strategic plan was driven by Bradley's situation, namely the challenging and competitive state of the higher education landscape. And particular attention was devoted to what today's learners seek when selecting a university or college. And then the plan goes on, to describe a dual focus on two types of learners. So can you unpack that for us and tell us what are these learner types and what kind of analysis led you, uh, yeah. led you here? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a great question. We, we, uh, so two interesting parts about the strategy. First of all, it was done during the height of the pandemic. I joined my presidency during the height of the pandemic. And a shout out to my colleagues that obviously that created a lot of stress and anxiety and pressure on everyone. And yet we continue to move forward. So I, just a quick shout out to my colleagues for really being great partners and thinking forward. The other thing we did is very early on in the strategic planning process, we made the decision, and I, I could talk for hours about this, that um, we talk a lot, there's a big difference between being student concerned. Most high quality private universities are very student concerned, which is fantastic. But that's very different than being student centered. And if you're student-centered, one of the things you're doing is you're not just caring for students once they tap into your system, you're designing the system around them. So you're fundamentally rethinking how the university operates based on their needs and their interests. So one of the the absolute um, foundations of our strategic plan is we actually began the process by interviewing 1600 prospective and current students. And that was, uh, we spent, we worked with a firm in Iowa called Quester. We interviewed students who considered and came here, students who considered didn't come here, and a bunch of students that never even considered us. And the real question is, what are you looking for in 
a higher education experience today. And then once we got some initial results, we did some focus groups on campus to reaffirm that. And then to, to hats off to my colleagues for really, especially our VP of, of strategy and innovation, for really making sure there was a campus conversation around that. But the conversation was anchored around what to today's students want and need in an education. And that was foundational in the conversation. Um, that's where we got into the functional and aspirant students. And what we found is, as we did actually wonderful work from this company called Quest, where they used some initial conversation, then drill down to get a sense. And what we see is in the population of today's students, there are really two dominant groups. If one of them is the functional, I'm coming to get a degree, I want to get skill sets that's going to launch my career. And uh, interestingly, that's still a, a very significant part of the market. It's something that a lot of universities have started moving towards. Mm -hmm. To me, the really interesting conversation is around the aspirational students. Mm -hmm. And these are students that want more from their education. You know, it's not, a, it's not a check a box. It's not a, you know, get a career. It's around help me. And literally the term we use is help me lead the life I want. I want to have an impact. I want to have purpose. Mm -hmm. Help me figure that out. And so what we're doing is we're rethinking a lot of what we're doing to make sure look, we, we have been and will continue to serve the functional students well, but there's a large part of the market of these aspirational students who feel like higher education is not serving them well. And what we're thinking about in our strategy is how do we design to serve them as well. Boy, that's really interesting. Did you, uh, did you get any information on trends in the aspirant market? Is that a market that is growing? Is it more uh, reflective of Generation Z? It uh, is. Is yes. it? <laughs> it is. It's, you know, it's interesting because we got this information. Again, we did the, the initial 1600 was around uh, students that uh, many who didn't even consider us. That's the piece that really resonated with our students when we brought it back into the focus groups and mm -hmm. said, does this make sense? Like, absolutely, it makes sense. And today's students, I, by the way, I find this myself aspirational, right? The fact that today's students want to have an impact, want to make a difference, want to have a life of meaning. And uh, that to me is encouraging. And what are we doing to help stimulate that? And so we'll have to, and the challenge I think, um, I, I personally run into this in the past and I know much of higher ed does is we assume it's around functional, right? Yep. Come get a major, we'll give you the skill sets, launch you into career, we've done our job. And what a lot of our students are selling us is, mm, that seems shallow to us, it's not enough and help us kind of go to that next level. Yeah, and boy, that makes all the sense in the world to me uh, as well. And it, it, it makes me wonder for, for those institutions that are putting all of their attention in the functional area, if they may be missing the boat a little bit or missing a market maybe. Um, and I know that's not true for all institutions, but yeah. I think that is a huge opportunity. You know, we. We talk about, I, I spend a fair amount of time talking to my colleagues about the changes in higher ed. And, and you, you probably know this data better than I do, but we look back into like 1870, from 1870 to 2010, constant growth in enrollment, constant growth in demand. And then over the last decade, we begin to see some softness in that. Uh, some data came out just recently suggesting it's even softer than we initially anticipated as a result of the pandemic. And then everybody talks about the demographic cliff, right? We all see it coming, talk about it in the enrollment get and all these negative terms. But what's interesting is 
I don't worry about that because I see a big chunk of the market that we're not serving well. And if we just think about that and say, if we serve them well, they'll show up, but we've got to build it around them. And so that's one of the things we're thinking a little bit differently about. And I think it's a huge, to your point, I think it's a, a huge opportunity in the market. Mm, boy, well, good for you. Now, that leads to a, a follow-up question that yeah. has to do with, so how do you how do you leverage that? And as you know, because you're a strategy guy, yeah. you've, you've taught taught this stuff. Um, one of the big criticisms of strategic planning is that it it never gets beyond the book on the shelf. And yeah. so, you know, a lot of plans fail right at the point of implementation. So what's yeah. your plan for making sure that this is going to become a living and breathing document and that you'll be able to fully yeah. leverage the opportunity? Boy, it's a great question. And, and I, as a strategy professor for many years, I would often talk about, they say, well, it's a, it's, it's a good strategy and stuff to execute. I'm like, well, if you can't execute, it's not a good strategy, right? Mm-hmm. So execution is part and parcel to it being a good strategy. So there are two things that were, I mentioned that the, the foundational piece was that it's got to be built around the needs and interests of students. The second piece was it needs to be fairly straightforward. Our last strategic plan had I mean, I have to go back and count hundreds of action items. Uh, This one has 11, right? So we've created 11 things we're focusing on. But even in that 11, we've got got what we call, we've got a vision, we've got our imperatives, those things that we have to move on, and then some action items underneath of it. But honestly, I don't worry about the action items as much as I do the imperatives. So the way we describe the strategy is it's not prescriptive, it's directional. And what I wanna do is then every decision we make is informed by the direction of the strategy. Mm -hmm. So when you come in and we have a a personnel review committee, you're requesting a new position. First thing the senior leaders do when we look at that says, is this directionally consistent with the strategy? I I don't even wanna, I don't even get burdened around, was it an action item from the strategy? Cause that's not relevant. Is it directionally consistent? And if it is great, if it is not, then it's not likely to get approved. So to me, a key part of making strategy work is to make it um, a part of how you operate directionally and get less obsessed around individual action items. Because if it's a really good strategy and it's being adapted to what's happening in the market, the action items will change, right? We tried something, didn't work. Are we adjusting in the right direction to make, and you miss opportunities if you're not willing to be directional in approach as well. Yeah, boy, that's that's very wise, and uh, I I understand why you've been described by others who I have talked to about you and Bradley as an innovative entrepreneurial leader, and that's a great example of how that plays out on an on an operational kind of level. Um, are there any other examples that you can provide of how your innovative mindset? Uh, impacts or helps to inform the operational model at Bradley? Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting because, and, and, and I would, it, it's, it's a great question, but I changed it a little bit. How are we creating an innovative mindset on campus? Yeah. And so I, one of the things that I'm a big fan of is uh, I'm, I can't be the chief innovation officer, right? I mean, that has to be part and parcel to who we are as an organization. So we had uh, opening up the new semester, I had a conversation the other day, and I have discovered, for example, 
we have a whole bunch of experts all over campus on design thinking. Mm. And if you get in design thinking, one of the things that really makes design thinking, human-based design thinking really powerful is it puts the client, I actually prefer the term client over customer with students. We co-produce this together. Their clients are not customers. It's could bore you to tears on my why I think that's an important distinction, but <laughs> so I don't call students customers, but I'm okay calling them clients. But in a good design thinking, you put the clients front and center. So mm-hmm. part of what I see as my job as the leader is to help my colleagues develop the tools to do that and then create an innovation ethos on campus. So we're having some conversations around who are the design thinking thinkers they are all over campus. I'm, I'm, it's amazing where they're popping up. They're in art, they're in engineering, they're in science. And so we're going to put together some teams and say, okay, let's start thinking differently and start focusing with the student centricity first in mind. And so I see part of my job is not to be that chief innovation officer, but to create the system that allows my incredibly creative colleagues to be my partners in innovating. So you're, you're really building it from a grassroots kind of level and uh, that will no doubt catch on, yeah. I would imagine. So, um, so what about change and the barriers to change? Because in an academic organization, as you know, there is always a certain amount of inertia yeah. that you're up against. So how do you think about, how do you think about that and as a leader yeah. Uh, as an innovative leader, how, how do you approach change and the resistance that is always there at some level? Yeah, so there, there's been two pieces that have worked well for us. And I mean, this is all a work in progress, right? Change is an ongoing process. You're never done navigating that process. The two pieces that um, I'm a big fan of is, first of all, uh, always be clear on your mission. Why are you doing what you're doing? Uh, you know, ask the question of why, not how or what, but really get to the heart of why. I think you had previous podcasts that have actually talked about that and get to this real heart of why are we doing what we're doing? And when you do that, uh, for us, it's we serve our students, right? We're here to be, be of, of value to them. And then that allows you to start, if you're really doing a good job of that. And I think, I think this model of design thinking or something similar to design thinking helps us do that well then you can start taking a critical look at some of your processes and some of the things you're doing. It says, okay, great. We're really clear on the why. Are the hows actually getting us where we want to be? And so it allows you to question some things, but you got to keep coming back to this is why we do what we do. This is why we do what we do. This is why we do what we do. So that's, there's a constant drumbeat around that. And that's why I'm, I'm being increasingly loud around the difference between being student concerned and being student centric. And boy, I, I get no argument from my colleagues that we want to be student-centric, not student-concerned. Great. To do that, we got to start looking at some of our processes, for example. So that's been one piece of it. The other piece of it is, is on my senior leadership team, I have this wonderful mix of people who have great institutional experience here, have great institutional knowledge, and some people that don't have that background. Uh, so I have a, a COO, CFO, um, Cheryl Koch, she's amazing. I brought her in from out, she has a private equity background. Mm. Uh, her background is actually not in higher ed. And I remember we were interviewing, we were talking to Cheryl and some of my colleagues, like, she's great, she's awesome, she's got all the skill sets we need. The only issue, is she doesn't have higher education experience. So what I heard was, she's great, she's awesome. One of her strengths is she doesn't have higher education <laughs> experience because, um, and she's become, 
she and the provost work wonderfully together because she has this annoying habit of asking, why do we do that? Mm-hmm. And he's, he's confessed about half the time he can't answer why. <laughs> and so it's, uh, so I think it's, but yet his institutional knowledge is critical. So I think successfully, I think either just relying strictly on what you've done in the past or bringing in completely new is problematic. For us, that mix has worked well. People that understand the institution, understand the traditions that are important, the traditions that need to be maintained, and someone that's willing to say, yeah, but why do we do that? And that combination for us is working really, really well. There has never been a better time to study higher education. And the Bay Path University Master's Degree Program in Higher Education Administration has been designed with this in mind. Through the highly practical and relevant coursework, you will learn to identify emerging trends and apply cutting-edge practices to address the challenges faced by higher education professionals today. Classes start every eight weeks and are taught entirely online by supportive professionals who have deep knowledge and skill in the practice of higher education. This Bay Path program offers unique concentrations in enrollment management, institutional advancement, and online teaching in program administration. There's even a joint entry track with a doctoral program in higher education leadership and organizational studies for highly qualified applicants. Whether you are already a higher education professional or you're looking to switch professions to work at a college or university, the Masters in Higher Education Administration from Bay Path University will expand your career opportunities and provide you with personal mentoring and lifelong networks of like-minded professionals. Take the next step. Visit our website at baypath.edu slash higheredadmin. The need for qualified administrators in higher education has never been greater. Again, that's baypath.edu slash higheredadmin. Stephen, I want to revisit the point we were discussing right before the break and push you to be a bit more specific. How do you know when you have achieved the right balance between honoring and challenging the traditions of the institution? And how do you know when it is time to innovate? As you know, this is precisely where so many presidents get into trouble. And it's very tricky to find the sweet spot between tradition and innovation. Yes. How do you know? And you're right. You can get you can get wrapped around the axle fast on this if you aren't careful. Um, uh, you got to have an ear to the ground all the time. Um, we talk about it at the senior leadership team a lot. That look when we're in our team, we're a unified front when we leave the room. But in the team, let us you know. Let's talk about it. Let's dig in. Uh, we're we've been trying to do a lot of open forums. We've been trying to listen, and a lot of it is if if, if you are listening and paying attention, you'll get signals from the system. And by the way, that can come from two different directions. And, and you know this because you work in this space all the time. There's the pressure from, for example, the faculty, right? Mm-hmm. Very different pressure from the board. Mm-hmm. And so right within those two groups, you often have tensions that are different. And lots of conversation, lots of listening. 
And I'm constantly pushing both groups kind of to the edge of comfort. <laughs> you just got to know, you got to, and, and one of the things that's critical to doing this well is people have to be comfortable telling you things you don't want to hear. You have mm. got to make that okay. And uh, I had a colleague, I mean, even a silly thing, I was doing a Zoom call the other day, she was on it. She called me, she says, they're, they're, she says your lighting was really off. You look really red. <laughs> and I was like, wow, thank you for that, right? <laughs> so I kind of want to say really, because it was a pretty important speech. How was the speech? But, uh, but that's, you know, you just got to be say, thank you. When you give me a piece of information that you think I need to know to be successful, you've got to be open to that. And the first time you bite back on somebody like that, that, that stops. I, it's the, uh, there's an old, it was an old Rumsfeld quote, the unknown unknowns. It's the wow. unknown unknowns that get you. And uh, I'm a big fan of, well, let's find ways to make them not unknown. Mm. And part of that is just, you got to be out there. You got to be listening. Um, I, I have colleagues that have just taken upon themselves. Hey, you asked, you should know. And there's always the tension, there's always the pressure, and I'm always trying to listen. Say, great, let me know about it. We have a doctoral program in higher ed leadership and, and uh, innovative, innovative practice at, at Faith yeah. Path. We actually have one of your star employees uh, in the program. And we have, um, we have lots of emerging leaders. These are young and some not so young folks that really aspire to positions such as what you are in. Yeah. And so how does somebody uh, become or how does somebody develop the kind of mindset that you have? Um, I mean, do you have some do you have some tips or strategies or suggestions for these these emerging leaders in terms of how best other than being in a doctoral program, how best to how best to prepare for the kind of context that you're describing. Yeah, oh, what a, so I do. Um, I, and, 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 I, and I see it with my colleagues as well. So whether it's a, a VP position, a Dean position, uh, a, a presidency, I think the sooner you can, your, your, your ego is one of your worst enemies in this. Uh, if it becomes about you, you're, you're probably in trouble before you even start. And so I'm a big fan that in order to, to be open to the possibilities, you, you have to look, all of us have egos, right? I mean, that's, that's just part of being human, but got to constantly remind yourself, it's not about me. Uh, you know, we, my colleagues started a conversation, what's going to be your legacy? I'm like, no, no, no let's not talk legacy. What I want to talk about is, are we positioning the university for the next 125 years? I'm a temporary steward here. But the foundation is the university. And, and are we, as a team, serving it well? And it's easy to kind of get wrapped up into the, especially as you're, as you're maneuvering your way, moving up the organization. And, and by the way, I, I'm a big fan of, you know, present yourself well, be confident, uh, make sure you're, you're advocating for yourself. But if you want to have a really big impact, you got you to gotta watch your ego. That's, your ego is your enemy. And, uh, and if you let it get in the way, you stop listening in the way that you should. And that's when, that's when the unknown unknowns get you because you've, you've closed off the window that gives opportunities for people to give you feedback that helps you understand how to continue to develop. And so how did you learn that? Did somebody, did you have a mentor or did somebody, or was it just in the, 
the rough and tumble lessons of life that <laughs> yeah yeah good question uh, all the above quite frankly uh so it's interesting i'll periodically get the question um you know who's been a key mentor and i'm a big fan of i didn't have one mentor i've had many mentors and uh, there's there's a classic there's an old classic saying attributed to Confucius when the student is ready the teacher will appear. Yeah. And I've had a lot of mentors, but a big part of the mentorship. I so a great example. I went to the I was an engineer by background. I went to the University of Oregon. I'm going to design the perfect organization, right? Because that's what engineers do. Uh, so uh, thankfully, the University of Oregon faculty beat that out of me. <laughs> and I, I, I don't remember where I was sitting and I don't remember exactly the day, but I remember the experience. I still remember this feeling when I finally got it. Like they're telling me that I need to rethink this. There is no such thing as the perfect organization. The question is, are you improving it? Or, or does this, this functions work for you, et cetera, et cetera. And when I finally opened myself to that reality, that's when I really started learning in my PhD program. Oh, so yeah. I, I, I'm a big fan of, be open to the possibility here and recognize that I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how successful you are. You still got a lot. I still have a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. And I do that by listening to others. And part of that was a handful of aha moments. Some of it was, I didn't do it well, got burned. And then a lot of it was when I did do it well, I could feel the transformation happening. Yeah. And obviously you've developed the capacity for self-awareness and reflection as a part of that. I mean, so that you were able to see and make sense of, yeah. make sense of those experiences. So, yeah. But, well, but thank that, you. That itself is a work of progress too, right? Because as soon as you think you got that mastered, you've proven that you haven't. <laughs> so it's a, that, that's a journey that all of us continue to follow until the day that we are no longer right. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So okay. Well, let me change. Let me change gears here. I have a couple more okay. questions. Um, and I know that you are very passionate about multidisciplinary yeah. learning. You've been quoted as saying that you believe we should move away from students focusing on only one path or major, yeah. but instead open multiple doors for students to find their passion and then mold their educational experience so that they can focus on their passion. Now, this seems to conflict, as you know, with some of the rhetoric um, out there these days about standardizing the curricula and getting students onto these very narrow pathways just to make sure they complete their degrees. And uh, can you speak to one, how that passion evolved and then yeah. a little bit more about how, how it plays out there at Bradley? Yeah. Uh, it, 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 the evolution came from listening to students, right? So we did this strategic process plan where we tried to understand what they're after. And, and that really feeds to those aspirational students. Uh, I want to do something big. And I mean, even just that alone starts tearing down the disciplinary boundaries, because as it turns out, the world's biggest problems don't show up in nice, tidy disciplinary boundaries. So if, if you want to have an impact, you're gonna to have to be able to see things to be able to navigate things from a multidisciplinary perspective. So that, that was part of that conversation. And, and we know that that's something students, the kind of impact they wanna have. So we've gotta be more comfortable with that. The other thing is when you, when you start having this conversation around uh, uh, help me achieve the life I want, for a lot of our students, that's a discovery process. You know, I ended up with an engineering degree. It took me about five minutes after graduation to figure out that was the wrong path for me. Now, good fortune, lots of great mentors, ended up getting an MBA, found the right path. I think a lot of 
folks still are struggling to find their path throughout their career. So part of that multidisciplinary engaged learning piece is to help students discover that path. So don't, so it's kind of the traditional model in higher education, or more recent tradition perhaps, is come here, here are the dozens of doors we've predefined call majors. Let us walk you to a door. We'll give you the skill sets. We'll open the door together. We'll shove you through. You'll have a successful career. Good luck with that. What we heard in the surveys from our students is that doesn't work for us anymore because we're not sure what door we like. We want to come to your campus. We want to discover thousands of doors, maybe doors you never created. And by the way, don't open them for us. Give us a skill set so we can open them. And an example I use just real quick on this, but it's a wonderful example of one of our recent alums, a young man named Pierre Paul. Um, we're based in Peoria, Illinois, came to us from Ohio. Um, we have a, a, a wonderful speech team, one of the best in the country, arguably the best in the country. Came here to do speech, convinced he's gonna be a politician. That's his chosen path. Uh, he joins us and then he tells me literally in a dream one night, he had colleagues that were having a tough time ordering at a Starbucks because they were hard of hearing. And so what he said is, I want to create an app that translates sign language into verbal language. So he reached out to computer science. He reached out to his colleagues in business. He worked and he, he got the, the, the campus here to help him do that. He's launched that company, successfully developed that app, which apparently that's really difficult. I didn't know. So, so he's done what he, he, he found his path. He's launched that company. They have another product that automatically, so if you show up to a door and you're in a wheelchair, for example, that automatic door is great if you can get to the button, but maybe you can't. So they've created an app where you can hit a button on your chair and you think they will automatically open the door. We're about to launch that here on campus in a partnership with them. Hmm. That's his path, but it's not what he came here to study. So what we have to do is we have to create experiences for our students Many of those are gonna to have to be multidisciplinary to help them discover what's right for them. And then once they do that, the path will become more clear. But I get concerned about coming in and saying, you, you should be a business, business background as well. I'm an MBA, I was a business dean for many years. Accounting is a very popular field. My wife's an accountant, she was a CFO for a number of years. It's the right field for some people, but not for a lot. <laughs> so, you know, come in and say, you should be an accountant. No, you should come in and discover what you should be. And we have a responsibility to help you discover that. And that's why that multidisciplinary piece is so absolutely critical. Well, and I think um, those are great stories, by the way. I, I, I got goosebumps when you told me the story about your, your alum who, who yeah. created that app. What an impact uh, for so many people uh, yeah. in the in the world that's that's wonderful so um what you're describing has a lot of intentionality around it and i i think that's in some ways the secret sauce here in terms of making making it work i think the the folks that are arguing for a very narrow and more specialized kind of pathway are are making that argument because they're concerned about students getting off paths and wasting money, right? And wasting yes. credits and winding up without anything at the end of their yes. undergraduate experience. But you're talking about something very different, uh, an intentional yes. kind of, right? Guided Absolutely. guided experience, yeah. And it's interesting, it's, it's not having them off path, it's helping them find the right path. 
Uh-huh. And that's very, very different. So it's, and, and, and I get the criticism, individuals that are, pursue a degree, never follow up on it, never finish it because they weren't on the right path. Mm-hmm. So our obligation isn't to say, therefore education is flawed. The obligation is to say, no, no, no. Part of our obligation is to help them find the path that's right for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, our retention rates will go up. Their completion rates will go up. Their success post-college will go up. And so there's got to be a strong, so we, in our strategic plan, we're, we're in the process of reconceptualizing advising. Uh, I was uh, going to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's, that, there's a strong intentionality around that, that advising has to be different. And we've also added a piece, and this is admittedly, it's a work in progress, but I'm really excited about it. It's not just advising. We got to come up with the right terms on this because there's some loaded terms here, but some sense of life coaching too. So what do you really want to do? What impact do you want to have in your life? Let's talk curriculum after we answer that question. Mm-hmm. And I think if we had had that conversation earlier with Pierre or Paul, he might have actually been, who knows, maybe a computer science major, maybe a business major. He did graduate with a degree in, in uh, communication, uh, political science, but, uh, but he was able to augment that. What I'd like to get to the point is we help students identify that path. And part of what we have to do then as well is build flexibility into our curriculum. And so ironically, I would actually argue that we have to loosen up at the front end of the curriculum so that there's that flexibility so that I can come in for a year or two, figure out what makes sense and then lock in. But unless we're being very intentional about helping students discover that path, we let them wander and get lost. So it's that intentionality around helping them really discover what's right for them that ends up being a key piece. Yeah, boy, that's that's very, very smart. So, you know, I interviewed Mark Lombardi, president of Marywood University before the holidays, and he was describing the life coaching um, yeah. kind of approach that they have put in place. And he credits it with their uh, spike in graduation rates and retention, it sounded, uh, it sounded really well, well done and highly intentional to your point. So, um, that's great. yeah, so that's, I'm, I'm personally, I think those are wonderful developments, uh, for, for our students. So now my final question, yeah. I am, uh, very curious to know what's on your radar right now that you yeah. are especially excited about. So is there a new project an idea or an innovation that's occupying your thinking these days? Yeah, it's, 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 um, I'm, I'm glad you left a broad category there because it's, uh, it's more of an idea. It's more of a, uh, uh, we just, we just kicked off a, uh, a welcome back to the new semester and was talking about this with my colleagues yesterday and, and more, more of a, what I would call tonality. And what's really hot on my mind right now is how do we become truly student centric versus being just student concerned. And mentioned this earlier, but there, I, I see these as very, very different. We, we are very, we're fantastic about caring for our students once they tap into the system as we've designed it. And what I wanna get much, much more intentional around is are we designing the system the way we think it should be or the way that really serves their needs best? So we're having a lot of conversation around that on campus right now. I can't tell you what that's gonna look like because it's not my system to design, it's our system to design. And so one of the things that we're doing is, again, we're having conversations around, I think design thinking might be the framework, but let's have a conversation around that. But we're gonna call it 
um, Bradley University campus conversations is what we're setting up and having conversations around, I think this is the right model, but first and foremost, how do we become more student centric? And my, my hope and expectations is you'll begin to see changes in curriculum, changes of processes, and that change will be driven from those who are working most closely with our students, which is exactly where it should be happening. And that's something I get pretty excited about. Stephen, thank you so, so very much. This has been a, a very rich and a thoughtful and a, a wise conversation. So I'm, I'm grateful for you and I wish you all the best with your, your ongoing work and journey. Great, it's been a pleasure to be here, thank you. I'm Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Ingenious You is a production of CHELUP, the Center for Higher Education Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free monthly Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Education webinar series. Be sure to rate and review Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.